publisher stating that, without a clear indicator of the author's intent, it is impossible to create a parody of extreme views such that it cannot be mistaken by some readers for a sincere expression of the views being given. Hi, I'm Jack. And I'm Levi. And welcome to Pose Law, the world's foremost internet anthropology podcast, where we find fresh perspectives from the edges of culture, asking the most important question, is this a troll? Excellent. So, Levi, what have we, what have we got this time? Um, we have a, a classic, uh, this one, from uh, the late 20th century, um, a young man named Ted Kaczynski, otherwise known as the Unabomber, and his manifesto, uh, The uh, Industrial Society and Its Future. A notorious work by a notorious man. So how about we give a little bit of background on Ted, first of all, to give a bit a bit of perspective on why people are still interested in this manifesto so many years after it was first published. So Kaczynski... Uh, <laughs> shot, shot to fame, I suppose. <laughs> um, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, look, that's a way of putting it. <laughs> in the in the mid nineties, after a series of bombings, um, which I suppose you would consider, perhaps he would consider, I guess, a PR <laughs> PR campaign <laughs> for his his point of view, and it certainly worked. It certainly did. Well, between it was nineteen seventy eight and nineteen ninety five. He sent people homemade bombs in the mail, hence why he was called the Unabomber, the University and Airline Bomber. I think that was what his FBI file was called, Unabom. Yeah, yeah. The FBI called him the University and Airline Bomber and the newspapers called him the Unabomber, which is slightly redundant, but but it sounds pretty slick. So Great marketing. the, The reason why he was mailing out these bombs was... Basic, basically, an anticipation of the attention economy. He, he was mailing. But it's it's totally true, and he says he says as much in his manifesto that he was mailing out these bombs, and he needed to kill people so that people would take notice of his manifesto. Because if he tried publishing it normally, either he'd be rejected by a publishing house, or if he were accepted, then no one would bother reading what he wrote. Mm. I reckon Gary Vaynerchuk would have been mad about Kaczynski. (laughs) (laughs) He's all over the attention economy. (laughs) This guy guy understood attention. He he did exploit attention by killing three people and injuring 23, but he certainly, certainly got attention. And in 2021, he's got two guys to read his manifesto and talk about it online. So 20, 25 years on, I think. He did work. He won. <laughs> and and so anyway, he's got, he's got like a like a fan base, basically. He does. People, people still mail him letters in prison. People still talk about him. So who... Who was Ted Kaczynski? Is it do people pronounce it the Polish way Kaczynski or do most people call him Kaczynski? Uh, well, they're he's American, I imagine that most yeah, probably Kaczynski then. Yeah. All right. So Ted Kaczynski, he's a he's an interesting guy. So maths genius, IQ in either primary or high school measured at 160 or something. 160. Absolutely yeah. absurd. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
that's literally like I don't know how many standard deviations above the mean that is. Like one in ten million, sort of thing. The guy was mathematically extremely gifted, and he was—I think he was in his mid-teens when he went to Harvard for a an a I- bachelor he, of he, arts. An IQ, an IQ of one hundred and sixty puts you in the ninety-nine point nine nine seventh percentile. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he <laughs> one and a half. He, he studied he studied mathematics at Harvard, um, and then went on to do a PhD in mathematics as well. Was that at UC Berkeley or no? He did University a PhD and MA at Michigan or something. Okay. Okay. Um, and yeah, he did it in complex analysis, which um, it's, it's I, th- I think is quite. You know, being a being a, a complete noob when it comes to math, my understanding of complex analysis is that it's really hard. <laughs> it's there in the name. It's very complex. Yeah. I, I don't even pretend to have any idea about. But it makes it lots of really. I'm just an internet anthropologist. Really pretty pictures. That's what I know. In my um, my many hours of research on YouTube, I see lots of pretty mm-hmm. pictures from complex analysis. Yeah. So his PhD thesis, boundary functions was apparently good. I'm in absolutely no position to say whether it was good or not because I will not understand a single word, but apparently it was good. Yeah, and if you Some, are so inclined, you can go and read it yourself. It's still up on uh, it's still up on uh, UMISH, um, their website. Yeah, they probably don't don't advertise him as a famous alumnus, don't they? Could you imagine? He's probably not up if on they're the like on his owner's role or something. you walk down you walk down like the main strip of the university of michigan and they've got like a little plaque (laughs) he's you probably won't find him there his face won't be on any walls but interestingly during his education a few things happened which might have helped to influence ted kaczynski the Mm mild-mannered mathematics genius uh turning into the unabomber while he was doing his undergrad at Harvard, he was part of a psychology study by Henry Murray, who was a psychologist at Harvard, uh, and Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of this study. So I'm not entirely sure what the study was trying to achieve. It's one of those psychology studies that seems to have inflicting harm as its primary goal, and then they collect data to try to justify inflicting harm on someone. Where yeah, it was one of the uh, they let's torture some undergraduates. <laughs> so that we basically, basically, it's either they torture <laughs> undergraduates or dogs. Those are the two species that they quite like torturing. And yeah, during this, dogs. <laughs> yeah, he he was told that. He would have to write an essay where he he describes his aspirations and his beliefs, and on the basis of this, he would debate philosophy with another student, with another participant in the study. What actually happened was that in the study, they got someone to read over these essays and then used that as ammunition to belittle him and insult him and denigrate him and... They attached electrodes to him to measure, I'm assuming, the stress response. They probably came out with some really profound results that people get stressed when you abuse them. Uh, This is something that we've never known before. 
So hats off to Henry Murray for that. Really that was a groundbreaking piece yeah. of research. <laughs> uh, <Right>. And <laughs> you would assume this would leave a mark. I mean, it's we, we, we'll get into his no. hatred of central authority and of mind control when we discuss the, the text proper, but this could well have contributed, at least in part, to his absolute loathing of any attempt to control people's behaviour. How do you think that you would respond to being systematically abused psychologically for 200 hours? Yeah, look, I'm sure the electrodes attached to my body would detect sweat. My heart rate probably would go up. I'd probably be upset. The crazy thing is, though, Mm. he spent 200 hours as part of this study. He kept coming back. Yes, you see, like, maybe he liked it. Moving on with his life. So he, when he was 25, he was lecturing in mathematics at university, which is pretty insane. At, U- at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Which is insane. And then, and then he, he just dropped out. He really hated it at university. He dropped out, went to live with his parents for a while, and then moved to a remote cabin in Montana where he started trying to live off the land and be self-sufficient. Now, is there... And in... So, yeah. Yeah, is there any evidence that he was tangled up in, like, any MK Ultra stuff? I did, I did read in a few places that some people thought that that experiment by Henry Murray was an MK Ultra mm. thing and that Ted Kaczynski got MK Ultra'd. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't know. Look, at. It's not the sort of thing that I would categorically rule out. Yeah, look, the MK but as are pretty infamous. <laughs> yeah, it it doesn't oh, seem like he was he was fed massive doses of LSD. I feel like he would have said something about it in his manifesto. Hard to say. And as an internet anthropologist with an academic record to protect, I don't want to make unsubstantiated claims about the Unabomber getting MK altered. And it being sort of being one of those situations where a supervillain is created by the dominant powers. No, we don't want to absolve him of his responsibility for his actions by blaming it. No, on- blaming it on MK Ultra. <laughs> cool. So, so he 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 was living in the wilderness in Montana, and in '75 he started a campaign of sabotage against developments near his cabin. So he started burning stuff down or sabotaging machinery. <laughs> Have you ever? And then in <laughs> uh, the lovely lady that I'm seeing at the moment, we, we recently were speaking about a, a, an arsonist, a convicted arsonist <laughs> here in, in, uh, in Hobart. <laughs> and, and she said, um, she said, she, she said, Oh, that's weirdly attractive. <laughs> <laughs> people's houses (laughs) so you know like it really some people wouldn't necessarily object to that (laughs) maybe Kaczynski was just doing it for women (laughs) women like bad boys and you know what's more bad boy than just burning down developments near your wooden cabin in the wilds Berkeley dropout who starts burning down houses (laughs) maybe he found out that being really good at maths on the sexual market just didn't work out and being an arsonist is Oh, yeah. <laughs> more valuable. Gets people hot under the collar. So so what happened after he started? <laughs> down 
Really well, after he started burning things down, he did something that would make him even more attractive to women. He started <laughs> mailing homemade bombs to people. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> That's straight to the and top. His, of the his sexual market value went through the roof. Alpha male here. <laughs> Absolute alpha male chat energy. <laughs> pure chat energy. So he... Pure chat energy. He started mailing bombs to, to university campuses... He put some bombs on a flight, on, a, on an airline, mm. which didn't detonate, but apparently would have brought the entire plane down. And he was targeting places based on, in, in his mind, how complicit they were in the advancement of technological society. So mailing them to particular university professors or departments that he felt were involved in destroying nature and advancing technological society mm. to an airline, I guess because they are bad for the environment. Presumably. It is pretty technological. You know, it is pretty technological, yeah, the giant kilometers an hour. flying metal contraption. Yeah, that moves all other technology around. Probably not a fan of planes. Probably not. He, he did this between 1978 and 1995. The FBI were chasing him during this period. And eventually he, he wrote his manifesto while he was doing all this. And he wanted it to be published in a reputable paper. So he wanted the New York Times and said that he wouldn't mail any more bombs if the New York Times published his manifesto. And they weren't sure. And I think it was Esquire put their hand up to, to have it published. And he he wasn't happy. Or was it Playboy? Do you remember? Penthouse, right? Penthouse, that's it. Yeah, Pen, Penthouse said that they'd publish him. He said that that was less respectable than, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. So he'd accept it, but he would mail one more bomb with the intention of killing someone but only one bomb. So eventually the, the the Washington Post published his manifesto. And his manifesto is a 35,000-word tract describing why he carried out this campaign of bombings, why he dropped out of his academic career to go live alone and as self-sufficiently as he could in the wilderness. It's, yes. No, the Washington Post did end up publishing the essay. Yeah. Yep. They ended up publishing it after it was deemed unacceptable that in return for a less reputable um, publication like Penthouse publishing his manifesto, he would he would mail one bomb. And so yep. the Washington Post decided to to publish to avoid that. Man, he um he he smacked him on the bottom for that, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. It's the attention economy. He he Understood it and presumably what, still understands it. What an attitude is that? Like, all right, um, you can, I'll get published in this other major publication, but for that, I'm going to have to kill someone. <laughs> I'm going to have to kill someone for it. <laughs> oh, all right, Ted. <laughs> we'll, we'll publish your bloody, bloody manuscript. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy is clearly very good at maths, but I wouldn't call him socially adjusted. Well, well I mean, he won, didn't he? He got it published in the Washington Post. Yeah. 
That is true. <laughs> so the, what's, is the result what's lesson we should take away from this? <laughs> is don't compromise. <laughs> so, yeah, so subsequently his brother ID'd him as the Unabomber to the FBI. He suspected that it was his brother based on reading the manifesto. Yeah. He, he recognised some of his brother's turns of phrase and things like that. The FBI caught up with him. He's serving quite a few life sentences at the moment. Yeah, like eight. <laughs> yeah, eight. Look, he's serving enough life sentences that he's not going to get out of prison. With no chance of parole. No, on none of those eight life sentences. Could you imagine the irony if, like, we, we figure out this life extension technology, right, and then we force Kaczynski to use the technology to actually serve his full sentence? The, the irony of that. I don't know if that would be cruel or not. I suppose it would be pretty cruel. <laughs> it would be extremely cruel. <laughs> Probably not a humane. The, the US judicial system starts going after ironic punishments <laughs> as its primary focus. <laughs> So, Jack, now that we've given an introduction uh, to the Unabomber um, and its background for the audience, <laughs> at this point, uh, can you give us, uh, in your professional and academic and scholarly opinion, uh, a percentage chance that Ted Kaczynski is a troll? So, unlike last episode when we were discussing Bronze Age pervert writing the Bronze Age mindset, I definitely am leaning towards sincerity in the case of Ted Kaczynski. So he, he dropped out of an extremely promising academic career, killed three people, injured 23 people, lived in a cabin in the woods, was chased by the FBI, is serving eight life sentences and is unrepentant. I'd say 99% chance sincere, 1% chance the highest effort troll in human history. At an unprecedented level of higher for trolling. Pure Pepe. What about you? What what are you thinking in terms of sincerity versus it being a troll? Yeah, look, if he if he is a troll, he's committed. And I can't fault him for that. I just think that that there's there's t- I don't know why I'm taking this question so seriously. (laughs) The guy's not a troll. (laughs) The guy's clearly not a troll. Is this on point? Why do we do this guy in in this in this show? Clearly he's not a troll. I don't know. Because it's a weird book. But um, no, the guy's dead serious. I think even if I didn't know all that information about him, just reading the book. Yeah, like at, at some point, the penny dropped, I think especially towards the last like third or something, where he just gets really, like it's all serious, but he just, just some, there's something in the tone of his writing this sort of last quarter or so where you're just like, oh, this guy's deadly serious about everything he's saying. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you referring to the sense of barely contained rage? Yeah, yeah, especially when he starts talking about his strategy in the future and just yeah. how uncompromising he is. 1% troll chance. <laughs> yeah, you're I, gonna... sh- I should amend what I said earlier when I said barely contained rage. I mean, this guy was mailing people bombs, so it's, <laughs> it's not, not contained really contained rage, not contained. is it? It's just rage. <laughs> it's just rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, uh, he's, he's pretty pissed off. 
Yeah, let's jump into it. What um, the first thing that we've got here, Jack? Um, yeah, let's discuss the, the power process. Power first. process. This is super important to understanding Kishinsky's worldview. He posits that human beings have this innate need to exercise what he calls the power process, or to exercise power through the power process. So, what's the power process? It's it's a way in which you go about exercising power that allows a human being to feel fulfilled or feel like they're actually living for something and not leading this empty life. It's not enough to exercise power or mastery over something, say over the environment, without having gone through the power process. Otherwise, it feels completely meaningless. So the power process consists of four parts, three of which are necessary and one of which isn't always present but is present a lot of the time. So those things are, one, setting a goal. Something I've always struggled with, setting goals. <laughs> goals. <laughs> <laughs> he should have been a motivational speaker at like a high school or something. <laughs> now kids are going to talk about setting goals. <laughs> if you want to be published in the New York Times, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a hot competition to get in. <laughs> It's a very hot competition to get in. So you need to be able to set a goal. You need to be able to go about achieving that goal and expending effort in going about achieving that goal. Because if you just achieve the goal without doing anything, you haven't gone through the power process. Then the third component is you need to actually achieve the goal. And if the goal is impossible, then, again, you're not going to be able to go through the power process Then the fourth component that is very important but not always present because some people have no need for it is autonomy. So you need to be able to autonomously set a goal. You need to be able to go about achieving that goal in a way that you have autonomously chosen. One example that I've heard of the power process of, say, exercising power without going through the power process is if, say, a gambler went to a, a casino and just won every time. They won everything. They never had to expend any energy. Very quickly, they're going to get bored. And that boredom is corrosive. If it goes on for long enough, they're they're deeply unhappy and feel like they're not achieving anything and going nowhere. And that's because even though they're, in a sense, exercising power, they're achieving a goal that they want, they're not doing that through the power process. And the power process in our society at the moment has been has been subverted to a great degree. So, Levi, do you want to talk about what the power process or how, how the power process exists in our society at the moment? Yeah. So, one of the most interesting things is, or just, well, just before we move on, actually, do you, what do you think of his analysis? Yeah, I, I like the idea of the power process in terms of being fulfilled. It sounds very new agey if you put it in certain ways of you, know, you need to visualise your goal and then work out how to go about achieving it and that's the only way that you will enjoy achieving your goal, except it is true. There is a reason why it's why saying that makes a lot of people roll their eyes because I've heard it so many times before. It's because it is true. Yeah. People do need to expend effort to achieve goals yeah. and to feel good about it. Yeah, and there there are like issues around like, for example, people who win the lottery, for example, not 
you know, that's actually negatively correlated with like positive, positive life outcomes. Um, often. Yeah, they get depressed, don't they? Yeah, depressed, family issues, and this. Sort of so, like, uh, you know, and so they've achieved a goal without expending any effort. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting. I wonder, I, I wonder if he was like influenced by any of like the psychology researchers at like Berkeley and Harvard and that. If he must have read <laughs> Henry Murray, who tortured him for two hundred hours. <laughs> well, you know, like other than being, other than being tortured, um, <laughs> he was otherwise influenced. <laughs> Um, or if he just thought of that himself. Um, yeah, because it's an interesting idea. So, yeah, so one of the most powerful points that he makes is that we don't have to strive for anything substantive, such as things to do with survival, food, shelter, uh, sex. In particular, uh, all of those things are actually trivially avail- available. Uh, so... You can obviously just walk down to your grocery store and get more calories for more cheaply than ever before in history. Um, and here's right in this 95, this is even more true today in much of the world. Um, yeah, we can get it delivered delivered to you. You don't need to walk. Yeah, you don't even need, yeah, just get Uber Eats, right? Uh, and then, like, I think another one, like, I think a lot of these things that he was talking about back in the 90s have actually accelerated. Yeah, because, okay. In the 90s, you had to walk to a grocery store, right? Or drive to, you know, so you didn't even have to walk. You had to drive to a grocery store. But now you've got Uber Eats. You don't even have to drive anywhere. You get somebody to drive to you. Um, and you don't even have to call them. You just like punch a screen with your thumb. So that's one thing. But then like sex, that's even crazier, right? Like back then you had to like go to a bar or something, you know, like a goddamn chimpanzee and like try to convince somebody to have sex with you, right? Not these days. These days, again, you just like go on Tinder, it's on your phone. You've got like this huge sexual market at at your fingertips, right? Um, and in some that case, and porn. Yeah, that oh, and porn. All right, even more so. So like if you can't even be bothered literally getting another physical human to come over and uh <laughs> You can just see a 2D representation of a human and, you know, do your thing. So, like, I uh, I think he makes some really good points that, yeah, those have been subverted. Those things are trivially available. So what that leads him on to is a really important insight, uh, which is idea of surrogate activities. Now, surrogate activities... And I'd love to get your view on them, but I'll just briefly explain them. Surrogate activities are essentially activities that we fill our time with that whether in, whether subconsciously or consciously, we believe that they are substantive activities, as in they bring real fulfillment or that we have to exert real effort to attain them. But they're not actually we, they're not actually important for our survival or necessary for our survival. A really good example of that would be, I don't know, going and becoming a professional and <laughs> wanting to become an engineer or a doctor <laughs> and putting in like thousands of hours of study and yeah. work to become like a high status professional. Um, but like none of those things, the, 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 the motivations for doing those things were just narratives based on, you know, whatever our situation was um, to justify putting in all that effort. But we never, at no point, do you, if you want to become a uh, 
an engineer in Australia or wherever, do you really have to struggle for like feeding or sheltering yourself or whatever? You're just striving for that thing as a way to, uh, at a high level, go through the power process. But you don't actually, it's not necessary for your survival. That's a high-level overview of his idea of the surrogate activities, which I think is one of his most profound ideas. And, Jack, I, I'm sure that you, what, what are your thoughts on surrogate activities? Surrogate activities, this was my favourite idea in the manifesto. I really like this idea. I've got a quote here of him describing what surrogate activities are. A surrogate activity, it's an, an activity that is directed towards an artificial goal that the individual pursues for the sake of the fulfilment that he gets from pursuing the goal, not because he needs to attain the goal itself. It really yeah, so it's, it's a way like of nutshell. Yeah, completely. It's a way of going through the power process because in our society we're starved of ways to go through the power process for more yeah. what he would regard as more meaningful goals because as you went over keeping ourselves alive is trivially easy and doing things that our technological system doesn't want us to do pursuing those sort of goals are made effectively impossible so we're left with this middle band of of surrogate activities that don't bring us complete fulfillment we're still miserable just less miserable than we'd be without the surrogate activities all right, so Jack, that's that surrogate activities, and and you just said that um, it was perhaps your favorite idea in the book. Um, do you see surrogate activities in your own life? I think my life is about ninety five percent surrogate activity. <laughs> mm, yeah, the, the only thing I really do that isn't a surrogate activity is so he he talks about looking for uh, relationships as a non-surrogate activity that hasn't been obviated by by our society. So in terms of friendships and romantic partnerships, those are non-surrogate activities that I still pursue. But apart from that, I mean, I went to university for seven years. That's a surrogate activity. It's not like I'd die if I didn't do that. For the sake of survival, do you feel like you had to go to university? No. Otherwise... Some like what, what you know, hypothetically, like you're pursuing a career in writing right now, right? And yeah, which is 100%, 100% a surrogate activity. But if you had, if you had pursued this at 18 instead of going to medicine and you had now 10 years under your belt of writing, mm-hmm. like you know, it's not like some boogeyman would have jumped out of a closet and like ripped your head off, you know, that wasn't a survival choice. No, it was a, it was a. A choice of pursuing something which took up my time and was sufficiently complex to feel fulfilling and was very socially prestigious, which was also fulfilling, except entirely within the context of fulfilment from a surrogate activity. Mm. You know what's interesting? I, I once heard um that's that's really yeah, I sorry, just before I say something, I, I think I would largely agree. I think my life is entirely surrogate activities. <laughs> this, you, you, this you dropped out of medicine. You dropped out of that surrogate activity. I dropped out of one surrogate activity to go into another surrogate activity. And at no, <laughs> at no point was I ever at risk of like, like even like, okay, so I've been pretty broke at times in my young adulthood, um, in my early 20s, like 
pretty broke and um but at no point was i ever at risk of like starvation like in in like being being realistic i always had like family and friends to fall back on um even though it's embarrassing or it's like bad for one's ego <laughs> but even at the end of the day you could have just you know gone back on to the big fat welfare state <laughs> and sucked on, the, <laughs> sucked on the teat of the state right <laughs> like those scott if, morrison dollars mm, mm, so, suck some morrison's breast milk <laughs> mm. <laughs> no i i think like yeah, it's 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 actually a really profound idea. I I also um found uh I can't remember who said this. Maybe Naval or somebody else. Um, Naval Ravikant said, uh, calls uh video games shadow careers. Mm-hmm. I found that really interesting because you know like video games and the video game um like we live in this world now where it's even more so than when Kaczynski was writing in that we now have all these super stimuli, right? Like whether it's porn and how graphic it is. And, you know, especially if you fucking, I don't know, if you get into VR porn, like how intense that would be VR porn or like VR and games and gaming and like massively multiplayer gaming and like how addictive things like wow and stuff are. Those are like surrogate activities to the next level because they're literally programming computers to hijack your your nervous system to just give you all this serotonin right just to like feel amped up and feel like at the end of the day you're like making progress towards something that's the the whole design of these things is hijacking your reward systems but in fact like the algorithms that they've made are perfectly attuned to keep you in the what's called the zone of proximal development in this zone where you feel as though you're making progress but it's programmed to keep you there man like it's crazy yeah and so we have your industries built on sorry like feeding people like cattle these surrogate activities i don't want to well, you're, you're talking to someone who spent <laughs> too much money on a gaming pc and spends too much time playing games on <laughs> on an expensive machine that's really really good at rendering triangles basically very I'm, very I'm quickly criticizing it i just think it's it's profound that he's he's fucking right as far as i'm concerned i think like yeah, like he oh, yeah surrogate activities essentially and now and video games just being like you know a really uh obvious example essentially yeah the in terms of the surrogate activity so i and a really important part of his idea of surrogate activities is that they're not as fulfilling as real activities so do you feel fulfilled by your surrogate activities in, i well here's the thing you see like maybe that's an interesting point because i think like you know i've struggled with like uh depression and anxiety at times and you know maybe under somebody's model like um how do i say I, I, I don't know. This is like completely unsubstantiated claim, I think. So I don't want to get like too hoity-toity or too academically rigorous. But is it the case that anxiety and depression is increasing in developed countries and that even despite there being like less material wealth in other parts of the world, they don't have the same levels of depression? Um, I don't know. I think that's interesting. I, I think that I've had a lot of existential crises and I think that a lot of Australian, like, 
middle class, like undergraduate educated people in their mid twenties have, have have existential crises, and you kind of think like you look at the material level of like the way that our cohort lives, and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Having a, a mental health crisis, you know, like. You live in a first world country, you've got all the opportunity in the world, you've got your health and your youth, and you're having an existential crisis. They're like, well, maybe those things aren't actually relevant to what the human body and the human mind needs to, um, I don't know, have a sense of meaning. Yeah, well, clearly something is making us miserable. And it, it could be that we're not going through the power process and we're living through surrogate activities because certainly they don't make me feel all that fulfilled. Here's the problem with them right now. Like, here's the problem with the fucking idea of a career even then. Like, is that, like, it's such a huge amount of time. Okay, if you just spend the minimum amount of time at work, which depending on what field you're in, like, you know, when you were doing medicine, you were spending more than 40 hours a week at work, right? So comfortably, comfortably more than that. At a minimum, you're spending 2,000 hours a year, right? Spending all your time dedicating your mind and your, your body towards this thing. And then somebody like Kaczynski comes along and just says, like, it's a surrogate activity. Like, why are you actually doing that? And it's like, oh, actually, why the fuck am I doing it? Now, not to get all, like, moany and whiny and shit. Like, it's amazing in a lot of ways. But is that you're just reducing it to, like, we're just occupying ourselves. We're just keeping, like, entertaining the monkeys, entertaining each other. Looking after you. Yeah. I think I that's basically what he's he's reducing it to. But is that a bad because thing? he does he he does acknowledge it that some people will say my job suppose a person is a research a researcher or something you know, some sort of scientist say that I'm doing this job to feed myself therefore it's an, it's necessary. And I'm doing it for the good of humanity. So it's not a surrogate activity because it's good for everyone. And he would say the the amount of effort they put into their job is far in excess of what they would need to stay alive. So it is a surrogate activity. It is yeah, trying to fulfil a need for a power process that is left vacant because our society has made trivial a lot of the other activities that would have fulfilled the power process previously like getting food getting shelter getting water look man if you if you <clears throat> even if you live fairly poor in a country like australia like say you live on welfare like you can have a standard of living that is in excess of uh that is a higher standard of living than say a a, a roman emperor you know like 1500 years ago because of the advances in modern technology. A really good example of this is the cost of elimination. In and the real cost of anything is like the number of human hours in terms of like life expended in order to get that elimination. So uh, like a dollar can eliminate a room for like a whole day. Say, for example, I think it's actually cheaper than that. Mm -hmm. And how long does it take you to get a dollar? Well, if you're earning like 50 bucks an hour, it takes you, it takes you like a minute and 15 seconds to get a dollar. Then you can illuminate a room for an entire day. Whereas like a couple hundred years ago before fossil fuels and electricity, like to get an hour of illumination, you have to go out and chop down a tree or something. And 
dry the wood and like stack it all up and make the goddamn fire and expend all this energy. And so I think like in terms of the time and just the actual thermodynamic like work expenditure of the human body, even a poor person living in a country like Australia has an excess in the amount of um, capacity they have to just survive. Except for people who are like really like destitute, like out on the street, you know, with a some sort of psychiatric disorder and they can't even like function in a welfare state. Most people have a, a, an excess of ability to survive to the point, yeah, where it's it is pretty much all surrogate activities. It's it's status chasing, it's it's wealth chasing, it's entertaining ourselves. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Am I ranting too much? Probably Look, where we're discussing a 35,000-word rant. It's very much on topic. Anyways, I don't know. It's just a fucked-up idea, dude. Dude, this the surrogate activities idea has lit, has actually been fucking with my head, man. Yeah, me too, because it's effectively <laughs> describing my life in exacting detail. This is why I say, like, you actually have to take what he says seriously. The guy's fucking smart, and, he does, and when he was getting convicted, he said he wasn't insane. He's just dead serious about his analysis. How about we move on to to technology? Jack, Jack, Jackie, Jackie boy, Ch- Captain Jack. What what is technology? This is actually hard to say. So when someone says technology, I have more of a feeling than a than a strictly verbalized definition of what technology is. And because this because industrial society in its future is more a manifesto than a, a rigorous philosophical work. And yeah. Kaczynski does acknowledge this. It, it's, it's never really strictly defined what technology is. He more relies on the fact that you intuitively have a fuzzy idea of what, of what technology is. Get what technology is. No, actually, no, no, actually, no, I don't fucking think that people get what technology is. I think this is the, this is the funny thing about technology is, uh, and why it's crept up, you know, maybe arguing Kaczynski's point of view, it's crept up on society and people, is that um, if you're born into a particular, with a particular technology, you don't regard it as technology. It's just a part of your environment. And so there's actually like pretty much all of everything around you is technology. It's all been built mm-hmm. by it's all built from knowledge that's been accumulated for decades or hundreds of years about how how to do particular things. Like, I mean, even even say say my glasses that I'm wearing. Like, when did uh, optics start as a field? Like, four hundred years ago or something, you know? And glass blowing before that. But you know, cavemen weren't walking around with with glasses, you know, to correct their myopia. So. Um, yeah, I think that people actually don't know what technology is and we actually take it for granted that we're just completely bathed in technology. And he seems to, when he talks about technology, he seems to both be referring to say, our, our capacity for tool making or new tools, but then also to this, this force that he, he regards as malign and destroying human dignity and freedom. Yes, yeah, the techno-economic system. When it so when it when it comes to technology as tool making, he distinguishes between two types of technology. One of which is acceptable. One of which should be destroyed. And 
those two categories are small-scale technology and organisation-dependent technology. Yeah, and small-scale technology is, is technology that, as an individual, you can make and use without having to rely on far-off powerful organisations, like whereas organisation-dependent technology requires collaboration with with a large, powerful organisation, and that's corrosive for human freedom. I wonder and what he, you think of um, Aboriginal society, you know, like because a lot of Aboriginal societies, you know, even though I don't, I don't live in any way like Aboriginal people did pre-European contact, but uh, like they didn't have what, what, what Kaczynski would think of as uh, organisational technologies, large-scale organisational technologies, these things that... Yeah. Anyway, just a throwaway thought, I don't know. Or Ted Kaczynski think of pre-European Aboriginal Australian societies. You expect he'd prefer them to Australian societies that exist today. Which is weird to think about. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, small scale equals good. Small scale, you can think of like an icebox, something you can make yourself. Organisation dependent, bad, something like a fridge that requires specialised components. It needs some sort of coolant gas. It needs electricity that's generated probably by someone far away who can mine things to generate electricity, yes. who's built a generator. So like I, pen, I, pen, I pen, I pencil. Have you read that, mm. that paper? No, I haven't. I pencil. It hits nail on the head. The idea that no one person knows how to make a goddamn pencil, like a lead pencil, but mm-hmm. the creation of a lead pencil has and the delivery of it to like your local office works or whatever um, has taken probably thousands of tens of thousands of people working across all over the world, you know, chopping down the wood, digging up the minerals, like putting together transportation, digging up fossil fuels to fuel that transportation, doing all the marketing and everything. All of that, even something as simple as a pencil, is actually a highly dependent organisational technology. He'd be much more in favour of scratching stuff on the ground with charcoal or something Ch- like that. Chiseling it into stone, stone tablet vibes. Mm-hmm. But then saying that brings up something that I was unsure of when I was reading over this because he, the question of social technologies is discussed somewhat but quite fuzzily in that he he does mention that social technologies are used to control people. So he talks about the entertainment industry <laughs> used to distract people and make them tolerate worse conditions of yeah. life than they would otherwise. Mm. And that's a bad social technology. But then other social technologies like, say, language, he mm. doesn't mention. Mm. Do you think that's because, say, language is small-scale technology or it's sufficiently small-scale and the entertainment industry is an organisation-dependent social technology? It's th- This is where his where problems come in, when he hasn't really defined what technology is. Yeah, it's well, hard to say which social technologies would be unacceptable in his view and which clearly, would be okay. Like certainly a lot of social technologies actively, um, I guess they're like meme engines, aren't they? Like they're, they're trying mm. to produce produce culture. And by, by meme I mean as in like the Dawkins sort of sense, you know, uh, a piece of 
information in somebody's psychological repertoire that affects their behavior um, and spreads itself. Um, like these social technologies are producing memes that are trying to compel action, like having a particular career or engaging consumerism or having work in order to buy stuff. Um, so I don't know if language per se or something like that would be inherently bad. I, I think it's the ones that I think like feed into the broader techno-economic system. It's the, the sense that I got, at least. Mm. And what is, maybe you can tell us about what that technological system is because that is, that's the other way in which he uses the term technology to describe this force that seeks to expand its own power through human beings. Yeah, so to, I, I think, like, the broader issue at play here is that, like, technology and the economic system go hand in hand and he almost sees technology in this broad sort of what he said, like the organisational sense, is it's, you know, without ascribing kind of like a teleology or an intentionality to the, you know, inanimate artefacts, the system that produces these technologies is self-reinforcing and mm -hmm. self-propagating and uh, promotes its own growth. So we create technologies we those technologies affect the the social and political structure uh, structures of society and then people have to fit into those into that social structure so a really good example of this would be like um like the inventions of cars right enabled people to live further away but then you know one might argue that it was cars themselves that enabled the thing like the the urban sprawl which is you know it's it's sort of present in australia but it's really really obvious in in the us or places like la right like you have la is probably the prime example you know uh these suburbs they're enormous and these huge super highways and people spending like two hours each way to go to work um so you know four hours of their day five days a week um but that actual social structure is only possible because of the technology of the car and the, and the internal combustion engine um but in fact a lot of those jobs are actually going into those people going into cities to build the fucking cars <laughs> or to build the technologies mm -hmm. to like build more advanced cars and more advanced internal combustion engines and like to produce the marketing to get people to buy more of these things, you know? So it's just kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, if you view it through that lens and with that language, like it seems quite diabolical. <laughs> like it was yeah. just a twisted system. <laughs> but yeah, very impersonal as well, right? Like, there's no sense of, and I think especially if you were in like urban US or like industrial US, there's this giant biomass of millions of people in a place like LA. You know, LA has got like how many, 10 million, 15 million people in this tiny area, you know, suffocating on carbon monoxide and it's completely depersonalized. Like nobody, nobody cares about anybody else in a city that size, <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, with his with his idea of technology as this, I'm definitely taking more of a society approach to this conversation. <laughs> You're coming in very stretched. 
your with your synopses of <laughs> Mr. Kitchen, sorry, Dr. Kitchen Cheese. Because <laughs> when he when he talks about technology as this force with its own internal logic, it I suppose it, it's just a question of semantics. It just seems to me to be an emergent phenomenon as a result of humanity's desire for power or to dominate the world around them or people around them. So with technologies, a lot of them came up in response to war. So if you are technologically more advanced or you have better tools than some rival nearby, you're more likely to be able to wipe them out or assimilate them or something like that. And so the I'm not sure that I see technology as this independent force in our society and more a second-order effect mm. of human acquisitiveness and the desire for both dominating the environment and other humans but also increasing comfort yeah. for the individual. Problems. Yeah. And yeah, potentially also just uh, you know that's probably the thing that sets us you know one one of the key sort of deep fundamental things that sets us really apart from any other species is our capacity for tool creation. There seems to be no mm-hmm. upper threshold on it, you know. So for other tool creating species, say a beaver and their dams, um, there it seems to be extremely contained extremely limited whereas there's like no apparent limit on the capacity of humans to create tools no because unlike it seems unlike other species and um it's biology i'm sure there's an exception to this but it seems that humans are unique in the fact that we can use tools to create new tools and that process continues indefinitely as long as there are humans around yeah deutsch would call it david deutsch would call it like universality so like we there's something in our neurobiology in our evolutionary history where our kind of uh our mind the human mind as opposed to other animal minds were able to take a step towards universality we achieved Mm -hmm. universal ability for um tool creation and use whereas other other animals have not yeah and so that that process of tool creation seems to be what kaczynski is calling technology yeah and the internal logic of technology why it always seeks to both to in a sense expand its own power so have more and more technologically complex and advanced outputs and why it also seeks to rearrange society and, most importantly for, for Kaczynski, why it seeks to rearrange humans mm. to more efficiently achieve that end. And, again, I don't see... I see technology in behaving this way. With internal logic, which Kaczynski does describe cogently, I see that more as a second-order effect of human beings looking for greater comfort, mm. greater security and domination of their surroundings and other human beings. But it does result in quite perverse situations that I don't think anyone, any individual human involved or very few, would actually desire. 
in in terms of say us many people having jobs that they feel are completely meaningless and in many cases are completely meaningless to make money to be able to spend on other surrogate activities which are also completely meaningless you know i read a book uh recently called bullshit jobs by mm-hmm. <laughs> an actual anthropologist <laughs> <laughs> not an internet anthropologist uh, and it, it was fascinating he he talks about bullshit jobs being jobs where in, in order for a job to qualify as a bullshit job it's not just a, it's a bad job or that you know it's kind of like one of those jobs where you're like oh come on mate it, it's like it's a job where there's no social good and even the person doing the job doesn't think that there's any social good. And there's something about their employment situation where they can't openly acknowledge that. And a really kind of the sort of what captures that would be like a job where you can be on Facebook all day and you go and talk to your boss and you're like, hey, can you can I just do something? Like, you know, I'm just on Facebook all day. And they they just tell you, hey, shut up, don't worry about it. Just go back to Facebook. Don't tell me. Don't let me see you. Mm-hmm. And um, he sort of like his name's David Graeber. He really he outlines these bullshit jobs and like there's this whole issue with like so many people have got these bullshit jobs where basically they're doing these things that are meaningless. They know they're meaningless, but they can't admit to them, and they're still getting paid. Um, and that's crazy that we live in a world like that. And now there's these surrogate activities. Like there's some you know non-trivial amount of people um, in Western society. Doing, they they don't even have the pleasure of doing a surrogate activity that they can pretend is meaningful. It's just purely meaningless, and it takes up forty hours a week for them. Yeah, I remember I heard about the thesis of um of bullshit jobs, and I interpreted it not as an aberration or as something wholly unexpected that you have so many people engaged in these bullshit jobs. I saw it more as societies evolve like any other. Uh, like organisms, and I saw it as just an evolved way to keep people who otherwise wouldn't have enough to do sufficiently tired so that there's not social unrest. And surrogate activities, well, Kaczynski's idea of surrogate activities fits really nicely into that Yeah, because they do keep you tired. As As a surrogate for fulfillment, they keep you tired. That's really fucked up. Actually, when you put it like that. <laughs> it's really <laughs> awful. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, man. So, no, th- so so I, I did want to ask you about, we've just spoken about like quite a bit about technology stuff. Um, do you think that the stuff that he, he was talking about then in 95 with regards to technology, it, can you see that being the case today? It, it's just accelerated. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I wonder what, because the guy's still alive, I wonder how he would view the world as it exists today and as, especially oh. now that the pandemic, now that the pandemic has accelerated social technologies which tend to atomise people. Could you the more Kaczynski, like what this guy would think of fucking Facebook, man? Oh my god! Probably pretty pretty similar to what I think of it. It's a uh, 
Facebook and social media are smoking for our generation. They're terrible for you. Everyone knows they're terrible for you, but no one wants to admit it. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild, isn't it? Who would have thought when you were just like adding 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 uh, a photo of yourself at like school formal or whatever when you're 16? Mm. Is now this this technology that's like I don't know being associated with increasing rates of depression amongst teens and all this sort of stuff. Mm. It's not not so good. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, man. It's the sort of thing that we have a hard time foreseeing because technology, yeah, unless there's some sort of magic catastrophe, which you can't rule out, like an asteroid impact or a solar flare that wipes out most electronics on Earth or we have a nuclear war or there's a, a truly catastrophic pandemic that makes the current one look look like nothing. Technology does seem that does seem to increase in complexity at an exponential rate because you use tools to make new tools. Whereas humans, at least in, I'm saying this from my perspective, I tend to view the world linearly in that I have a hard time imagining the true extent of exponential increase. I don't know, By Carter. (laughs) (laughs) Don't encourage me to put more money into cryptocurrencies. Buy more crypto. <laughs> I need very little encouragement to do that. Slowly then but, suddenly. Oh, wait, do you know what I heard about recently? It's <laughs> funny saying. I didn't realize the crypto bros, the crypto bros have this saying. Have you ever heard the saying stacking sats? What stacking what sats? Does that mean? Stacking satoshis. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't checked the Bitcoin price today, actually. Oh, what's going up, mate? There's a bull run coming. <laughs> Shocktober. <laughs> Shocktober. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Rather than discussing magic internet money, which we've both bought, let's discuss technological society. I think it applies so, more today than ever before. I think we're becoming an increasingly technological society, so much so. Yeah. It's insanity. It's like right then, you know, like if you go into um, YouTube, there's this there's this channel called the Foresight Institute, and it's a sick channel. It's amazing. But this is just a bunch of people who literally all they're dedicated to is like, let's get all the smartest people in these fields, life extension, cryptocurrencies, distributed computing, whatever mathematics, you know, um, and uh, get them together and get them all to connect. And now there's no there's no time lag. You don't have to fly these people around and like try and connect people or whatever. You just like put them in a Slack channel or like put them on a Discord and like put them on a Zoom and all of a sudden you've got, you know, the 10 leading experts in life extension or talking to one another and like putting up a free YouTube video and like, you know, connecting with people in distributed computing or whatever and thinking, or how could we make these even like crazier? You know, it's accelerating. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that that is an example of the technological system rearranging the world and rearranging human society to accelerate the production of more and more complex technologies. You're using this technology of of rapid long-distance communication 
But you know what the fucked up thing about to 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 accelerate technological development in all sorts of other domains. It the, the, the fucked up thing about information technology, right? Is what 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 really blew my mind about was when I saw Snowden doing this uh, like uh, interview or giving a presentation from house arrest in whatever country or wherever it was in Moscow or something. And he was beaming himself onto this little computer in, I don't know, let's just say America somewhere in California. Fact check me on this, but you can go and look at it on YouTube, add it on YouTube. And his face was on the computer and then he could control the little robot. So he's, he could like move around the room. Right. And the issue there was that these people, these nation states didn't, it wasn't that they didn't want Snowden in that room. They didn't want his ideas in that room. They didn't want the information, mm-hmm. his perspectives that he was spreading. And now this information technology has collapsed the world to a point where all of these memes and all these information, these ideas can like instantly connect no matter where they are to the point where you can't even, if you have literally banned somebody from your country, you can't stop them from giving a public presentation. It's accelerating. And it that is a good illustration of his point that technology exists as a social force outside of, say, politics or economics. Because at, at least in the case, in the example you gave, it's it's a force working against the political desires. Yes, against at least of certain countries. Main main no, it's, mainstay political powers. Yeah, yeah. He he sees it as a force that follows its own logic, and oftentimes is more powerful than political or political forces. It uses economic forces to achieve its own ends. It's more powerful than many social forces, like the desire for freedom. He brings up specifically. We've we've mentioned a few times that technology seeks to rearrange society and people to achieve its own ends, but we we haven't really gone into specifics about what he meant when he said that, and I think that's important. Yep. I think a really I could illustrate an example. Yeah. I think this is a really point in my experience. I I, I uh, worked for a little while doing uh, like mental health which we can talk about his perspective on the mental health stuff as well, which is interesting. But um, I, I did a little bit of time doing workshops for boys in high school, uh, running mental health, mental health workshops. And um, there's this kid who's like really distressed and he, he spoke about how he had ADD, um, but he, and he couldn't concentrate and stuff and how that was causing him all these issues. Um and what was really bad is he couldn't take the medications, right? So they tried to dope him up on these medications, you know, like Ritalin or whatever. Um, but he, he'd throw up; he couldn't he couldn't keep him down, um, and they ma- they made him sick. And so here's 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 a couple of issues that I had with it personally. It was one: you, you're forcing teenage boys to sit in a box surrounded by one another. And with no real like free time for socialization, except for like 45 minutes of lunch, to all f- sit facing a wall and be spoken to by an authority figure for six hours a day. They're highly regimented lives. They're not allowed to express any individuality because they've all got the same goddamn uniform. They've all got the same goddamn haircuts. And then the ones that can't sit there still for six hours a day and shut the fuck up, you've got to give them amphetamines like high. Highly addictive, <laughs> I don't know, like 
addictive substances that are actually substances of abuse. And if you've ever taken amphetamines, you know, like how much they can jack you up. And you're giving these to like 14, 15, 16 year old boys. And then it's causing him, he's the one who's seen as like being the, the the one that's broken because one he has to be on these medications in the first place so he's given a diagnosis of some stupid fucking disorder and and because he can't keep down these stupid drugs it, that's seen as like a bad thing you know and he's struggling at school because of it and I, I just think that's like utterly utterly insane and what what's the point of this school what's the point of this school we're going to grow this kid up to like suppress his personality with amphetamines so that he can go and what get some job where he's just going to sit down and like take instructions from some other authority figure, right? And in order to shape him to the the industrial society that he's supposed to go into when he's 18, 19, 20, uh, we modify his his nervous system with pharmacological interventions. That that was insane. That was like one of the most insane experiences I had doing that job, and I found it so profoundly disturbing like to be quite honest and i felt just really sorry for this kid and and i think there's actually a lot of you know the rates of add and adhd diagnosis and prescription on these amphetamines is actually going up in in australia yeah that's that's a really good example of how kaczynski saw and probably still sees technology rearranging humans and human society to achieve its own ends. So he he talks about how we have all of these social technologies, like, say, school and law courts, as well as biological technologies like medications and, in the future, gene editing. Mm. And then, say, digital technologies like computing, say, surveillance, Mm. predictive algorithms. So in China, how... Social. social credit system. Yeah. You've got all of these technological systems mm. that exist really to make human beings better able to work in roles that advance technological society. So you send someone through school and oftentimes one of the one of the major components for success in school is obedience. Or how <laughs> compliant you are. Compliance, yeah. No, it's so it, Jack, the technical term is conscientiousness. Conscientiousness, yeah. Conscientiousness is the positively valenced <laughs> way for describing someone who's highly compliant. <laughs> and the same is university. Um, I say that as someone who spent almost a decade in tertiary education. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I am very compliant. So you you have systems like that that enforce compliance. You have systems or social technologies like the entertainment industry, which allow human beings to tolerate more stress than they would otherwise. So Every, they're able to work harder. Jack, everybody is institutionalized in our society. Yeah. Everybody's. I used to think I was somehow more institutionalized than other people. Maybe to a certain degree, I am. So in boarding school, right? But like, everybody's institutionalized. Every everybody, except for people who are a bit out there or whatever, go and do their own thing. I don't know. Um, but if you go into any profession, man, you'll be institutionalized throughout university, and then as soon as you get into your first job, whether it's medicine or law or, or whatever, or 
if you're working in like some other industries. I don't know. Everybody's institutionalized. Yeah. Yeah. You've got um and then it is interesting, say with the entertainment industry, producing these things that allow you to effectively switch off. I'm not sure if you'd call it relaxation necessarily, but at least no, no. be distracted it's, it's for a few hours a day. It's more like um, open-eyed sedation. Yeah. Yeah, and I say this as someone who partakes heavily in that myself. There's, there's actually been studies into it that, like, you kind of, like, go into this, if you're watching TV, you go into this, like, brain state that's not, like, sleeping, but it's not, like, waking. It's kind of this sort of comatose, semi, semi-comatose semi sort of state. It's really weird. <laughs> and it is interesting. So this was at least published in 1995, but entertainment has only become more immersive. So in 95... More wealth to be gained from it. Yeah, well, you, you just you look at how immersive, say, modern MMORPGs are. Yeah, Fortnite. Versus, yeah, versus, say, television in 95 or radio. Doom back then, didn't Before they? that. So we, we can see the process in action within our own lifetimes in that the... Entertainment media are becoming more and more immersive and more and more distracting, which in <laughs> in the eyes of Kaczynski means that we're able to tolerate worse and worse conditions and more and more stressful jobs, more and more meaningless Being one lives, of- less and less ability to exercise uh, our ability or, yeah, less and less ability to exercise power by going through the power process. I think that this might have the- been most one of the most terrifying parts of his the entertainment stuff his insights yeah this idea that these technologies are increasing our capacity to live in discomfort yeah i wouldn't and the interesting thing is because of how he views technology as a system within an internal logic rather than this being a conspiracy by a, a cabal of suited men smoking cigars in a dimly lit room at 2am or something like that. He's not he's he doesn't, not a conspiracy theorist. No, or at least it's a distributed conspiracy. There's it, no leading voice. Instead, say, people will make more yeah. immersive forms of entertainment because you get more money within our existing social structure for doing that because you get more viewers. So no, no one's doing it conspiracy. to sedate a portion of the population or make a portion of the population more able to accept worse conditions at work or in their lives generally. It's motivated by other factors and other incentives, but the sum total of people behaving according to these incentives is to really go towards the point of technological society that Kaczynski talked about. What what are you, what are your thoughts about the the future of that with things like bioengineering? In terms of bioengineering, maybe first we should discuss what Kaczynski talks about because he he addresses this specifically. This was another thing that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I can I can totally see this happening. I would be surprised if it didn't happen. Actually, potentially already. So, 
when you were talking about the kid you saw taking ADD meds, mm. like getting it loaded on like dextroamphetamine or methylphenidate or whatever, whatever he was taking, uh, that's another way that human beings are are modified by technological society to be able to tolerate worse working conditions. We've worked out very imperfectly because Mm. the the neurology of, say, attention of discomfort, of depression, of anxiety is so poorly understood because it's so complex. But but you can smash people with SRIs and they'll fucking take it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to an extent, if they don't off themselves when they start, because you do off, you, a lot of people get an increase in suicidality. Yeah, usually you just get over that hump. <laughs> and SSRIs, SSRIs don't work a lot of the time. I just think that the, the fundamental as an aside of that, of that hypothesis is just like there's this one button that you pr- press and humans will feel better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the happy button. This is the I no longer feel empty button. You, you have this one molecule in your brain and you just press that and all your problems fixed. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I think of using the happy molecule before? <laughs> anyway, so we've very we've very imperfectly and at a very, very low resolution worked out ways to try to correct some mm. states of of in a sense, incongruence with our, the demands of our society. Because uh, at least in Kaczynski's reading, mental illness really is, or mental health is the ability to tolerate the stresses of life under technological society without demonstrating signs of stress. Yeah. So yeah. in the case of That's the kid with ADHD, it's a, per, it's a kid who's not good at sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day. Um, and staring at a whiteboard or staring at their computer. Yeah, instead of And in the depressed person, it's it's a person who's unable to tolerate the stress of living entirely through surrogate activities <laughs> and without being able to do anything through the power process. He horrifying. <laughs> he does say that some people that most cases of depression in his view are biological, but he did say that the number of people suffering depression because of stress from living in our society is increasing. Can and I at least in terms of point the about. incidence of depression, that is going up. Yeah, just a quick point about the uh, mental health stuff that I think is really hit, hit home for me. I read this book called um, uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Very fantastic book. People should read it. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about what it's about, but uh, Johan Hari has this one point that he makes about like actually mental health issues, depression and anxiety, are actually to be expected. He says uh, depression and anxiety at times, uh, depending on the circumstances, can be, they are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. An obvious case being like if you, uh, you know, a loved one dies you should feel sad and you should feel down. How long that should go on for, if you ask the DSM, mm-hmm. how many weeks, you know, but what's the appropriate amount of time to grieve for a loved one? Who knows? How long is a piece of string? But I think what more broadly Johan Hari says and what potentially you could argue from Kaczynski's point of view is that actually people getting depressed or becoming anxious or whatever is the that is what you should expect in our society. Mm. Should I, This is a normal reaction. 
to an abnormal circumstance of the structure of our society. And the fact that we're modifying people in order to acquiesce or to alleviate their acute suffering so that they will comply with the system, whether it's through entertainment media and those sorts of social technologies or pharmacological technologies like amphetamines or SSRIs or whatever, these things are modifying people so that they don't feel those expected and normal emotions and reactions to actually quite an abnormal situation that we all find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, okay. Something in our society is too much here. more miserable like, than other societies. I feel like I'm going to bat a lot of the time for Kaczynski. I'm just trying to like give him, trying to see things from his point of view. <laughs> with because yeah, well, with Kaczynski, my my criticisms oftentimes lie outside of the text itself. So it's my major problems with him are real really that he's a terrorist and a murderer. Like those those are my biggest criticisms. It's like don't maim or murder innocent people and complete strangers. So it's it's hard to separate the author from the manifesto in this case, also because he's writing about what motivated him to yeah. be a terrorist. But well, so if in terms of... Last, like- quarter of the book like where he starts talking about like the strategies around like this like mm. directly attacking a technology and that sort of stuff like or, or like if he hadn't done those things you could actually see a lot of people agreeing with him except then he went and like blew people up right yeah well then we probably wouldn't be reading it it's yeah, exactly. sad but I think he is right when he says that we we are reading it because he killed people So what was, I feel like you asked me a question and then I answered a completely different question and took us down a rabbit hole. Oh, you were asking about genetic modification. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we've, we've been <laughs> chemically modifying ourselves. We've got psychotropic drugs like antidepressants, mm. anxiolytics, antipsychotics. To zannies. Yeah, to, <laughs> in our case... Or in, in, in the eyes of Kaczynski, to make us more compliant with the demands of the system, in mm. the case of Zanny's, in order to make SoundCloud rap. So, <laughs> so he then says that the, the, the next frontier is, one, making better drugs that can, at a better level of resolution, modify yeah, our Designer drugs. But then the next one, which is I think what I was saying I was really scared about and what I would be surprised if didn't happen before talking about something different, is that we'll start modifying ourselves genetically to be better adapted to the system. And this... Well, scarily to be better better at taking those drugs, you know, like the drugs were designer yeah. and now we're designing the drugs for the genetics of the person, right, in the 2020s, say, but then by the 2030s or the 2040s, we're genetically engineering children to be better at taking those drugs. Mm-hmm. This is the world we're heading to, man. They're turning <laughs> the frogs, frogs gay, Jack. <laughs> yeah, well, I can see that happening. I mean, so long as Pfizer manages to evergreen Zoloft or something like that and claim it's a fundamentally new type of drug so they can keep it on patent, of course they prefer to be able to genetically modify people, sell people genetic modifications to be better at taking Pfizer's 
branded it's drug. Not, it starts with things like Mendelian disorders or things like Huntington's. Like, yeah, to make sure. That yeah, and this is right. It's a, uh, yeah, Kaczynski like, says that we wouldn't tolerate you know, making someone into an automaton straight up. That would arouse popular opposition. <laughs> yeah, except, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he says that it genetic modification to make us more compliant and better able to tolerate technological society will be done piecemeal and people will accept it, one, because it happens slowly. So say with climate change, it's happening slowly, so I wouldn't say people are cool with it, except most people don't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that they're cool with it, it Jack. <laughs> yeah, except the way the way people behave is, you know, you can say you're not happy with it, but then you're going to go and live the sort of existence that's yeah, well, destroying the earth and Sorry. make it possibly uninhabitable for our grandchildren. So it's happening slowly, which can make people much less concerned about it. And also, each step of the way will seem very reasonable. So, yeah, first of all, you'll have genetic modification to, cu- to cure some sort of awful disorder, like, say, curing cystic fibrosis. It, it's, it can be oftentimes a single base mutation. Mm. If you can fix that, you've, you can cure it. Doing, it. doing it in germline versus somatic cells is fairly different except you know for example you could cure an awful disease with genetic modification but then they'll go on and say well we can genetically modify your child to make them better able to concentrate in class for long periods to make them more conscientious yeah they'll just take the big five and they'll just go okay we can you know people who have who in the 90th or above percentile of trait openness um, actually have lower life outcomes, have lower life, um, I don't know, lower life earnings or whatever because they're too distractible or whatever. No, I'm just making shit up. Mm. And (laughs) we can reduce trait openness, but we can increase trait conscientiousness. You don't want them to be too emotionally volatile, so we'll reduce trait neuroticism, right? And then what we'll have is we'll just have this, like, mass trend towards the mean of, like, what's the most bland human who's just like just does the things that it's told to do, doesn't think too much about them, and everybody's just training that way because of the game theory of the situation, right? You want mm. your kids to compete, to be competitive in genetics, to be more competitive. Yeah, you're just min-maxing to being, for being a servile beta male. And he, he says this could actually be seen as being in the interests of of the person being modified in that there is real <laughs> suffering that comes about from living but from living in opposition to the system. Your life is much easier and in a lot of ways better if you do live according to it. Yeah. The he just says it's a the, it's a, a despicable and servile existence. Yeah. And then as a parent, if you I think he used the example of say there is some um, some gene that if you modify, you're much less likely to be a criminal. How most parents, if the if the procedure were completely safe, you know, say 0% chance of a negative outcome from it, at least in terms of side effect, then, of course, most parents would subject their kid to it because it's, it's well, in the kid's not to. interest. Yeah. Because by, by electing not to, you're 
you could in some sense see yourself as electing to give your kid this increased chance of becoming a criminal yeah, well, versus everyone is, else. Is in, the, the age-old question of is inaction really a form of action? Oh. Yeah. Do you, yeah, you so he... Responsible for your inaction in a world where... He lays out how eventually he thinks we're going to get to the point of genetically modifying ourselves to make ourselves even more capable of accepting poor living conditions so that we can dedicate even more resources and even more effort to expanding technological society. And I think that's, in our lifetimes, we're probably going to see that start to oh, happen. Well, there was that issue with the twins in China, remember? Yeah, they deleted, the I forget. Two, two, three years I ago think it was. I think it was CCR5 that they deleted um, to make them so that they couldn't be infected with HIV. Yeah, which again, as as he as Kaczynski was would say, is like that's the first step, and that a lot of people might say, okay, well, in that particular circumstance, they did it without regulatory approval or whatever. But like a lot of people would be sympathetic, just like, well, yeah, I would like my kids not to be susceptible to HIV AIDS. It sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. It starts there, and in twenty years, when it's above board and it's legal, and people can do it for like four hundred bucks. Yeah, look, so long as I can cheaply delete myostatin in myself, be jacked as fuck year-round, 5% body fat, I'll I'll tolerate that, whatever. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's... So long as I can be 150 kilos of lean mass year-round, I'm willing to put up with a lot. I think that's both reasonable and ethical. It's the it's the categorical imperative. I'm <laughs> saying that I want it as a universal law that everyone is 150 universal kilos of lean mass. Statement. I see no problems with that at all. Only, not only should you always tell the truth, even if there's Max Murderer at the door, Jack, but you should you should go and become a prize steed. <laughs> <laughs> you should become a juicy walking steak. <laughs> so anyway, that's the society that Kaczynski's fighting for. Wait, against? No, he's against all the other stuff, except genetically modifying yourself oh, to be pro myostatin. He's all for. Yeah, in vivo myostatin enhancement. Yeah. I think we yeah. can get on that. I mean, you could run out a presidential campaign on that platform. I mean, I'd be a single issue voter based on that. <laughs> What about leftism? Are we done with technology? Probably. Juicy one. Like to be to be fair to Kaczynski, that is like the thesis of his book. That's like the key, key part of his book. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely so in summary, so that's the power process. We're not getting enough of it, so we do surrogate activities, and technology is cucking us all. Yeah, pretty much. Therefore, blow people up. Yeah, and now leftism. Leftism. He he starts and finishes the manifesto by Look, ripping on leftists. If you don't like, if you don't like woke culture, this cancel culture, woke culture shit that's going on in the last few years, it's heating up. Mate, I reckon Kaczynski could be like the spokesperson against anti-wokeism. He basically <laughs> shreds, he shreds lefties. He shreds them. It was pretty funny. 
he's, he has some pretty good calls. So he, interestingly, at, on several points, I wonder if Shapiro lefties, would like what he said about lefties. <laughs> and Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> Max Murrow destroys leftists with facts and logic and mail bombs. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Come on, left leftism. So he he straight up says that he he doesn't have a concrete definition for leftism. He just couldn't thought, think of a a better term for the type of person he was describing. Do we have his checklist? Hold on, you keep on going. I'll pull up his checklist. His, his checklist, yeah. <laughs> so basically, clearly, and we know that he has, he spent a lot of time on university campuses and his description of leftists is pretty consistent with a lot of people whom I've met at, at uni. He sees these people as having come about from having two primary personality traits. So those are poor self-esteem and over-socialisation. As uh, And then there's a third, yeah, a third power lust. So poor self-esteem, fairly self-explanatory. They're people who don't think much of themselves and feel quite inhibited about speaking up for themselves unless they're part of a large group. And if they're part of a large group, then... They might not be personally emboldened, but they're willing to give their support to whomever is leading that movement. And that ties into the the power process. They feel personally disempowered, except they can subordinate the power process to some sort of mass organisation that they've joined, say a union, a social justice movement, and the successes of that movement they share in or to a to a faint extent they can share in and feel some sort of fulfillment of the power process through that then there's over socialization levi do you want to talk about over socialization or should i keep talking about it while you look for the checklist of things that identify you as a leftist i just found it but keep on going with overlap <laughs> so over-socialisation is another mark of the leftist in Kaczynski's view. So I can spot on. I over-socialisation I thought was pretty accurate of <laughs> quite a few people whom I know. <laughs> so he talks about socialisation as the process by which the values of society are inculcated in you. So say yeah, Nietzsche would call you a camel, hey. <laughs> yeah. And Bronze Age pervert would call you a bug man. <laughs> so, for example, I, I've been socialised not to steal stuff. If I see something unattended on the street, I'm not going to steal it because those values have been drilled into me from an extremely young age that I don't take other people's stuff. Even if no one's around, even if no one were to see me, I would feel really bad about it and that stops me from doing it. I've been socialised. Kaczynski sees people as being over-socialised when the demands made on them by society are so many that inevitably some of them are contradictory. But the over-socialised person tries so hard to adhere to all of them that they, they feel this real cognitive dissonance and feel extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. 
by these incredible demands made on them by society. And so to try to alleviate this discomfort, they start trying to police what other people do and start start enforcing the the morality of whichever system over-socialised them upon everyone else to a fanatical degree. They get over-socialised. They become extremely moralistic. And you, you can see that with the current moral scare or the moral panic from largely the, the white upper middle class about anything that could be remotely interpreted as racist or sexist or pick any <laughs> other ist. i got to send you this video. Oh, man, Jamie, pull that video up. <laughs> if we need a Jamie, all right, one day we'll be able to have a studio together, Jack, and we'll have like... We need a Jamie and we need to actually live on the same continent or in the same hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, and and then like be able to watch like videos and stuff. But anyways, I watched this like... Um... <laughs> This is the, I don't know if you've seen this, but the algorithm delivered to me, the, the glorious YouTube algorithm delivered to me some mm, praise surrogate. Be. It's a praise be to the algorithm. It fed me, fed me my surrogate, drip drip fed me like a little little hamster sucking at the teat of YouTube, uh, some surrogate entertainment um, from the social technology to keep me entertained. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this fantastic, if you go down the YouTube rabbit hole on Curb Your X, so you know Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know the theme yeah. song, the theme music to it. Mm-hmm. So they'll have like say 40 minute, 40, 40 seconds or like a minute or two minutes of of like some random thing happening and it'll be like Curb Your, curb your whatever it is. And uh, so like, you know, uh, and they're just ripping on people. So, like with uh, that that comedian Amy Schumer, how she stole jokes. They were like, "Curb your joke thieving," and then it'd show her like stealing a joke, and then at the end, play the same music from "Curb Your Enthusiasm." They had this uh, "Curb Your Racism," where they went around to all these like obviously white middle class people in like New York or something and were like, what do you think about voter um, ID laws? And all the white people, middle-class white people were like, oh, they're so racist, so racist, like they're discriminatory, This, you know, because, and they're like, why is this mm. discriminatory? And they're like, because black people don't have IDs and, you know, black people don't have X and Y or these things happening. And then they went down to, to the Bronx or Queens or some shit and interviewed a bunch of black people on the street and they're just like, do you have an ID? And all of them were like, yeah, I've got an ID. Why? Why wouldn't I have an ID? And they're like, what, what, <laughs> and they're like, what, what do you What do you think about people who don't think that black people have an ID? Any ID? They're like, oh, they're ignorant. That people who say that sort of stuff are ignorant. <laughs> Cue curb your enthusiasm music, and it's, it's like the, the shocking moment in the life of a white when you discover that non-white people are just the same as you. <laughs> <laughs> and the mind yeah. explosion moment. <laughs> this is like, yeah, the what not <laughs> Noel Pearson, uh, a famous Aboriginal leader um, in Australia, um, calls it the 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 racism, the soft racism of low expectations. And I think like these, um, you know, sort of inner Melbourne lefty middle class white people. That that's the sort of racism that they've got. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so it, it sounds like you've found the uh, Kaczynski's list of list of things that identify you as a leftist because you just spent a few minutes ripping on the people we went to university with. <laughs> uh, do you want me to read? Oh no, do you want to keep on going? Yeah. Want me to read the read the list. No, you read it out because okay, we, is- 
We've, we've talked about over-socialisation and poor self-esteem. We'll get to power lust in a sec. But how, how he talks about he doesn't have a definition of leftist that he's totally happy with, but he identified a list of things that a leftist would identify with and how if you identify with all, with all of these things, you're almost certainly a leftist. So how about yeah, you? It, it's, it's, you it's hit us with a, the truth. You increase your probability of being a lefty, a leftist scumbag the more of these you tick. So this is a uh, paragraph 229 from the, from the book or from the text. <laughs> the leftist is oriented towards large scale collectivism. He emphasizes the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. He has a negative attitude towards individualism. He often takes a moralistic tone he tends to be for gun control, for sex education, and other psychologically, quote-unquote, enlightened educational methods, for social planning, for affirmative action, for multiculturalism. He tends to identify with victims. He tends to be against competition and against violence, but he often finds excuses for those leftists who do commit violence. He is fond of using the common catchphrases of the left, like racism, sexism, homophobia, Capitalism, imperialism, neo-colonialism, genocide, social change, social justice, social responsibility. Maybe the best diagnostic trait of the leftist is his tendency to sympathize with the following movements, feminism, gay rights, ethnic rights, disability rights, animal rights, political correctness. Anyone who strongly, who strongly sympathizes with all of these movements is almost certainly a leftist. The most dangerous leftist that is... The more dangerous leftists, that is, those who are most power-hungry, are often characterised by arrogance or uh, by a dogmatic approach to ideology. He, I'm not sure if he says explicitly why leftists are so much more dangerous than everyone else, but my feeling was that it's because they want to identify with mass movements yeah, or resist individuality and want the state or some other large organization to take care of people. Yeah, they makes have a, them have a daddy more, complex. Yeah, and it makes it's them more likely like, to try to use technology to achieve those aims. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's a real kind of parent psychology thing going on with the with like leftism and it's something it's kind of like almost like a father complex or a mother complex you know like the mother complex comes through and like the welfare states go look after everybody and then the father complex is like some sort of like oh uh, yeah we need the state to like set things right and do everything so it's it's extremely statist extremely yeah, yeah. i think that's why because kaczynski likes small scale collectivism to a certain degree i think implicitly he likes small communities like small communities individuals you know out there doing like things and meaningful for the survival um large scale collectivism however bad technology organizational technology bad yeah well now that you've mentioned uh small scale communities how about we get onto what he thinks the world should be. You want to talk about power the lust? Future. Yeah, actually, yeah. Let's do that before we move That's on. Before we get onto that, the power lust lefties, they're bad. Power lust. Okay, so just real quick. So, like, 
power lost is essentially the Marxist, right? Marxist communist socialist types, the ones who justify the socialist utopia any through any means. Okay, let's uh, let's um, you know whatever. Excuse the Khmer Rouge. Excuse what happened in Venezuela. Excuse what happened in the USSR. Excuse what happened in Mao's China. Excuse, 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 or Cuba or whatever you want to take. Excuse all of them. Uh, their actions were okay, um, and in particular what happens the power lost is uh they can use all of these like movements to justify uh their aggressiveness towards uh opposing points of view to justify their actions to justify um the technology the use of technology to justify the dehumanization to justify killing people um and to justify seizing power Anything else, Jack, that I missed? I'm also taking some liberties. I'm expanding. His yeah, th- they pretty much summed it up. We all power, know power lust, power lust is like poor self-esteem in describing leftists in that it's pretty self-evident. It's only really over-socialisation that bears, bears a bit more discussion, which we have done. I think the lefties, I man, yeah, if you, like, seriously, if you don't like lefties, go and read this book he shreds them (laughs) (laughs) what should what should society be he spends much less time discussing this than he discusses than he spends discussing what society is and how society got to be that way in terms of what he wants society to be he first of all talks about how we should use as a counterpoint to industrial society, wild nature as as an ideal, something untrammeled and something that humanity has to live with rather than dominate. Mm. And he he doesn't go much further than that in discussing nature. The other thing that he he discusses as being key to, uh, I mean, in, in a sense, a good life or a life outside of technological society is freedom. Mm. This is important to the point where he, in the manifesto, refers to himself as we and sometimes as FC, which stands for Freedom Club. Mm. So freedom is an important idea to this guy. And he wants freedom for individuals and small communities where everyone knows each other and where they can live independently particularly not being dominated by large organisations who can make decisions without the consent of that small community, which would affect that small community massively. Let's say, for example, how uh, someone in a legislature can change laws on dumping toxic chemicals into waterways. A large factory dumps those now legal chemicals into a waterway and downstream a small community has tainted drinking water because of that. That's an example of the sort of thing that he doesn't want, the freedom of a small group of people being impinged upon by far away powerful and faceless organisations. So he wants freedom for individuals and freedom for them to go about the power process as they see fit. And to get to the point where you can do that, 
he seems to think that you need to destroy technology and destroy technological society, or at least destroy organization-dependent technologies. Yeah, and and not and and not not for the environment. So he makes this important distinction that, like, okay, the environmentalists, like, don't. There's no, there is no ideology that can come above the destruction of the the ultimate destruction of technology. It's not about the environment. It's not about left wing versus right wing or anything of that. It is not about any. Uh, political ideology it is just the pure destruction of technology that's what he wants and he, he even highlights look uh, if leftists get involved in this movement or if environmentalists get involved in this movement they're going to hijack the movement and then they're going to want to make exceptions for certain types of technology we can use this technology like communication technologies to do these things and then it's going to pervert the movement where the only thing that we care about is destroying technology that's what he wants yeah, there can be no ulterior or there can be no other goal that you would be tempted to use technology for because that's how technology survives. And he he's really hardline on this. He talks about how technology needs to be destroyed all at once. Otherwise, you might say destroyed in, he uses the example of the United States. Yeah, Well, it's just going to continue developing outside of that country. Yeah, it needs to be a global, global yeah. movement. But he has this kind of weird way of approaching where he's like, the system's basically sick, it's breaking down, and we mm-hmm. don't necessarily want to be explicit in, like, running for office or anything like that. We want to do things that disrupt the system, that increase the stress on the system. We want to increase the breakdown, the speed of the breakdown, and pour fuel on the fire. Yeah, because the... technological society is too powerful to bring down unless it's sick. And he said in the next, so in 1995, he said within the next 40 to 100 years, he thinks that there will be a crisis point in technological society because people are so miserable and unfulfilled that there is an opportunity for it to be overcome because he thinks that there's a lag period between developing technology that can make people better able to tolerate how society is at the moment there's that's happening too slowly versus how much more unhappy people are in society so he sees us as having that little window and within that period either technological society will reinforce itself to the point where it's truly inevitable or it will collapse and so he wants people to do anything really that makes life more difficult in technological society to increase the pressure on it to collapse. And once it does collapse, that's when people can move in in political movements. But before that, he doesn't think it's really worth doing beyond, say, disseminating an ideology and committing terrorist acts. Yeah, that's pretty much pretty much it. So is is the um is the manifesto is the manifesto still relevant in 2021? And is it worth reading, Jack? Yeah, it's more relevant than it was in 1995. It's crazy. Particularly, particularly after the pandemic has started. And the the relative importance of long distance communication is even greater 
than it was before. And it was already really important pre-pandemic. It is really weird as as a as a technology person, um, as in like studying software engineering um, and making technology. Uh, this is really weird reading this book, man. It was a really challenging book to read. Right. Um, and I think it's incredibly relevant. And I, I would almost, I would almost encourage people who are in technology, in the technology industry, to, or whatever, yeah, you mean by technology industry, um, I would actually encourage people to read it as a counterpoint to people going into technology, not to necessarily to agree with it, but as like, hey, here's some, here's a potent thing to read that is actually like incredibly scathing of um, what we're doing here. Yeah, I found it very difficult for similar reasons in that I'm uh, I, I'm the sort of tech apologist worm that Kaczynski seems really to dislike in that I, I'm very excited by the advancement of technology. Yeah. The fact that we can we can maintain a conversation and record it right now between you and Hobart at the moment. Yeah. The bottom of Australia yeah, between, and central between, Europe. Between Hobart and Prague, <laughs> that, that absolutely blows my mind. That, to me, is so cool. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And, and we're recording it. My, my, my default position is oftentimes to be excited about new technology, even things like, say, machine learning, even though it is so valenced towards surveillance just just the the applications for mass surveillance and behavioral control mm. are huge. I'm very excited by that technology. Uh, but this book challenges my fundamental assumptions or my first principles that technological yeah. change is good. yeah, and I found that difficult because it forced me to question why I think that. And ultimately, it comes down to a lot of technological advancement makes me more comfortable and I'm also just interested to see what happens. Yeah. Neither, of, neither of which are particularly noble attributes and it, it forced me to self-examine in that way. And what do you think, you know, if, if anything, what, what do you think uh, maybe the one or two... Um, points that's kind of had the most potent impact on you that you're taking away from reading this? Power process and surrogate activities by far, although I would say the idea of how we we do construct social technologies and medical technologies to make us better able to tolerate discomfort so that we are better workers was also... Extremely disturbing because it feels very true. Yeah. I I think for me, the idea of surrogate activities and yeah, how that ties into this um self-expanding technological system and the idea of like organizational technologies, those are like and, yeah, uh, maybe the two things would be surrogate activities and, like you said as well, the idea that we're increasing our capacity to 
sustain discomfort in order to better serve the techno-economic system. Those two things taken together are like, I think, deeply disturbing mm-hmm. analyses of our society, which I find, if not entirely true, true enough to like that they, they give me pause and uh, I think, yeah, have caused me to like reflect quite a lot about about these things. So we've been discussing technological society and its future for quite a while now, and I'm sure listeners, whichever of them is still are left, are enthralled, wouldn't mind a break. So how about we we give our final thoughts <laughs> and our scores? Read the book in the time that you spent listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's very short. You you can knock it over in an afternoon. A dark, dark afternoon. What are your thoughts, Levi? How likely do you think that this is a troll? And how convincing did you find it? What's your score out of 10? So probably not a troll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go I with I think we're on the same page there. I'm gonna go not a troll. Do I find it convincing? As in, would I would I myself go and blow people up? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> However, he is insightful about certain things, and some of his points of view, uh, I think, are actually worth considering, if for no other reason, to have uh, a devil advocate kind of chop away at things that I uh, take for granted, like my assumption that. So technological process progress is is good, you know. So yeah, not a troll, not convinced enough to participate in his activities, but convinced enough to consider how it applies to my life, I suppose. Yeah, what about you? I have very similar thoughts. This guy's not a troll. <laughs> it's just yeah, there's no way this is a troll. And if it is then he's playing 50-dimensional chess-level trolling. <laughs> but, but I don't think that's the case. I think, I think this guy is sincere in his beliefs. So, yeah, I'd give it 0% chance that this is a troll. Zero. In terms of what rating to give, it's this, this is really hard because... Separating the author from the work, the guy himself is a bastard. He, he, he killed and maimed a bunch of innocent people. Yeah. To basically is advertising for his book. That was his PR campaign, to go and blow up a bunch of people. Yeah, he felt justified in doing that. And then the, the society he wants for people, I don't, it, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't really want to live more like a hunter-gatherer or like someone in pre-agricultural times. Fuck no. In a group of, of 20 people. I find it may, this this might not be a... Dude, Hobart in July. I, fuck that. I want heating. Hobart in July. What about anywhere in Australia in February? <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get incinerated in the sand. <laughs> Yes, it's that that is not a society that resonates with me. And because this could be a large in large part brainwashing, I've spent so long 
in scientific education that I find the idea of of discovering more about our world and our place in it fundamentally exciting and then being able to apply that in engineering to changing the world. And his sort of passivity before that really doesn't resonate with me. But his criticisms of society as it exists at the moment I found extremely compelling. Yeah, it's weird that, isn't it? So... I mean, it's we 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 box ourselves in. We're trying to we're trying to rate complex things on a one-dimensional scale of you know out of ten, how convinced were you? So I nine. Nine, yeah. In terms of his the the society he wants and how he went about trying to get there, I'd give it a four, maybe. Like (laughs) especially how he went about getting there, I'd give that a Zero. In terms of his critique of society as it exists now, eight, eight and a half, I think it was really, really insightful and made me question a lot of my own beliefs. So that's a cop-out answer. I didn't follow our, no, our prescribed it. rubric for my for, a for giving a score on these things, but it's 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 complicated. It's Would com- I recommend it? Yes. Yeah. I do think it's worth reading. Definitely worth reading. Definitely not worth acting on. No, look, I haven't I haven't made any mail bombs during the, the time that I've been reading it. Yeah. It's cause you're so I have to d- deduct marks for that. Yes. So that was the second episode of the Pose Law podcast, Ted Kaczynski's Industrial Society and its Future. Pretty powerful shit, man. Pretty crazy. It was. Pretty, pretty disturbing reading, really. <laughs> it's 